in Joshua 11. Joshua 11 had a missing class there all of a sudden, kind of like a missing day. But, um, and this is a good time that I would like to ask some of you all to read uh, because just for self-preservation, because I don't know how to say all these words, but, but I will try to, I'll try to pronounce it in uh, verse 1. It came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madden, the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the north in the hill country, in the Arabah, south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite in the foot of Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these, having agreed to, come, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. So they defeated them and pursued them as far as the great Sidon and Mishrath, Mishrath, uh, Path, Maim, and the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. And he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Okay. So the text opens, we've seen recently what happened when various people heard things. Um, In 9-1, all the kings of the Jordan heard of what had happened uh, and they gathered together to fight. When Gibeon heard, they gathered to make peace. Then in 10.1, Adoniah Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had returned. And now in 11.1, we have Jabin, king of Hazor, Hazor, uh, hearing of this. Now, the average city, the average city in Palestine is about 10 was about 10 to 15 acres. As archaeologists have discovered that and studied that, they were about 10 to 15 uh, acres. Hazor was a city, it was actually two cities, a lower city of about 30 acres, 35 acres, and in an uh, upper city, uh, the, excuse me, the upper city was, was southern of the two but it's upper in a sense of elevation. You have about 35 miles in the, in the uh, one to the north called the lower city had about 175 acres. I might confuse miles and acres. This is my point. Average city 
about 10 to 15 acres that remains, archaeologists. Hazor, 200 acres. This was the largest city in Canaan. It was a virtual New York City in the land of Canaan. As a matter of fact, um, archaeologists have uncovered shirts that said, I love Hazel. <laughs> you know, and, and so there's an archaeological discovery right there. You see, Paul didn't bring you that. I mean, see, not we, you know, archaeology discovery. Right <laughs> and, uh, but, but it was a virtual New York City in the midst of Palestine. And because of that, it is the strongest military force that Israel has encountered to this point in time. This is the strongest military force. And not only do you have the city involved, but you notice in verse 10 that it's said to be formerly head of all these kingdoms. It's head of all these kingdoms. And you notice, just as we saw when Paul taught the other night in Joshua 10, that you have these cities binding together to fight against Israel. So you find the same kind of thing here. They, they get several different cities to fight together against the people of Israel. But one of the interesting things to me is the list of groups mentioned in verse 3. And I ask you a question about that. The Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Hivite. What is the significance of all of these cities that are mentioned? I went back to chapter 3 and verse 10. They're almost the same group of, of, of uh, places. I think that 310 includes the Gergeshot, but, yeah. but you're right. This is the list of cities that God said are going to be destroyed. And he mentioned six of the seven, but, but, but here it's the list of cities that God said are going to destroy. So, so the ones that, that Jabin is assembling for battle are a virtual who's who of who Israel is supposed to wipe out as they take the land of Canaan. And so while he's assembling this massive army, at the same time it reminds us of God's promises, as Boyd said in 310 and other places where God said he was going to give victory over these nations. Now, what strikes you in verse 4 about that language where the Bible describes have the numerous people, they have an advantage in people, they have an advantage in technology, they have horses and chariots, but it describes the people of the army of Jabin as many as the sand on the seashore. What's the significance of that phrase? The sand on the seashore. Isn't that what God said to the Israelites would be to Abraham? Okay, in 11 4. The sand on the seashore. In, um, so it's Joshua 11, 4. But in the promises to Abraham, you see that expression of how his descendants would be multiplied 
in Genesis 22, verse 17. Genesis 22, verse 17. Genesis 32, verse 12. And so both of those passages use that same expression to refer to how God was going to multiply His seed, His descendants. Here it is used for the vast army that the enemy has assembled. Now, there's going to be other times that this kind of language will be used to talk about armies assembled against Israel. You see the same kind of language describing the Midianites in Judges 7 and verse 12. But just as on this occasion, Gideon will there defeat them. God's promises to multiply Israel as the sand of the seashore trumps their armies that are gathered as the sand on the seashore. So as many people as the sound uh, as the sand of the sea and very many horses and chariots. And notice in verse 6 or verse 5 all the kings agreed to come and meet together. Do you remember that picture in Psalm 2 um, where the kings of the earth are gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed? This in a way is a kind of acting out in history of that psalm. The psalm was written afterwards but, but this psalm in a way provides a good commentary. All these kings, their armies They've come and they have assembled against Israel. Now, think about this. Here is the head of the largest city of Canaan who has gathered his armies and the armies of those around him. He has assembled all the kings around him because he's head of all these kingdoms. They are as many as the sand of the seashore. And they have very many horses and chariots. But let's go to Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20. And I want us to see this very type of situation was described to Israel by Moses. He told them what was going to happen and what God would do. In Deuteronomy 20, beginning with verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemy and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you. It's exactly what we have, isn't it? Horses and chariots, people more numerous than you. Do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Now it shall come about when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So the Lord described that there will be situations like this. And He stated, don't be afraid of them. The Lord who gave you, who brought you up from Egypt is with you. Do not be afraid. Do not panic. Verse 3. Because the Lord will go to fight for you. And isn't it interesting, after all this description 
of how many the enemy was and their horses and chariots and how all the kings had come up to meet them and fight. The Lord's first words to Joshua after describing how all these kings assembled in verse 6, do not be afraid because of them. Just like Deuteronomy 20. Just like Deuteronomy 20. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of them. Don't be afraid. For tomorrow at this time I will deliver them all slain before you. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. I don't know if I asked you for this, but if I didn't, if you've got an answer already, how many times does God say, I'm going to deliver them to you? When we see it one time in 11.6, just keep looking for that. Keep looking for that. I, don't, I may not have asked that as a question. Did I ask that as a question? Do you all remember? Okay. It would have been a good question to ask. I'm sorry I didn't. But do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow I will deliver all of them slain before you. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Now I did ask about that. What would be the purpose of that? If, if chariots and horses were the equivalent, I can remember what my uh, teacher said when I was in college, said it was the equivalent of tanks in those days. Of course, now that might be antedated because tanks may be so far surpassed. I don't know. But if that was the number one military machinery, of that time. Why does, Josh, why does God tell Joshua hamstring their horses and burn their chariots? Bob? Well, it could be to uh, stifle any temptation to take those horses with you and put those chariots in your own arsenal. Uh, okay, very good. It makes sense to me. God doesn't want them, as Bob is saying, to trust in military might, but in God. What would be a key indication? Deborah, raise your hand. Well, I was just going to say, I read from Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, where it explains. Okay, wait, wait, wait just a second. Wait a second. I was going to, that was, that's right. The next question was going to be. Where do you see an indication that kings were told not to multiply? Okay, Deborah, it's your turn. Deborah, where do you see that? I think it's in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Exactly. Kings were not to multiply silver and gold, not to multiply wives, and not to multiply horses and chariots. Lest your heart, horses from Egypt and chariots, lest they turn you... I forget the exact wording there, but 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 yes, that's the passage I was about to ask about. And Deuteronomy fourteen, uh, Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen through twenty, as Deborah mentioned, the kings were told not to do these things, and that's just an indication. And you see passages like that later in the prophets as well, like in Isaiah uh, thirty one, their horses are flesh and not spirit. When he's, he's calling on the, rebuking the people for trusting in Egypt. But Deuteronomy 17, that Deborah mentioned, particularly a passage I wanted to call attention to. So, hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. 
And I, I, I don't know if I'm being realistic or if I'm being affected by an animal rights society. I, I think about, though, when they hamstring their horses, not necessarily as killing them, but, but using them just for agricultural purposes and not for not for fighting purposes. I, and I don't know if that, you know, a lot of you are shaking your head that you've thought the same thing. I, I, I don't know that I know that, but it, it seems like to me that, because they're not forbidden in having the animals, per se, but it's not to put their trust in them as a military uh, weapon. Now, so they gather for this battle, and I hope that you all have good biblical atlases. Um, this one is uh, the Moody Biblical Atlas. And it tries to give you a little sketch of this area where these kingdoms were and uh, where this battle was fought. Now some of these things, some of these locations are a little bit of speculation. Some of them are firm. And uh, but but here is a good source, the the Moody Bible Atlas, and also the Holman Bible Atlas uh, has a good story about the city of Hazor. Um, and I think that usually when I was a teacher, that we this was our textbook. Um, and I hope that students keep it and use it in days to come. There are others. There are others, but this would have been, again, in the northern part of the land. You notice back in verse 2, look back in verse 2, Joshua 2, verse 11, verse 2, it talks about Chinnereth. What, what, do you know what Chinnereth was? Chinnereth was, you know what it is, you just don't know it by another name. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee. So when you see Chinnereth in the Old Testament, you're talking about the same area where Jesus has been doing a lot of his teaching and preaching. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the northern part of the land. Okay? And um, so this would have been the northern part of the land. The armies gather together for battle. And in verse 8, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. There's another passage where God gives them into their hand. And when God gives them into their hand, the text tells us um, that they, um, in verse um Eight, they struck them until no survivor was left. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him and hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Deborah, I may, you may have had other things besides Deuteronomy 17 to say. I'm gonna, was that the main thing you want to emphasize? I, I didn't mean to cut you off. You had other thoughts. Um, but but what, what other thoughts do you all have on verses 1 through 9? in this particular battle. Anything? Um, what we've seen so far when Israel took a city is sometimes 
there's been a little bit said about the method by which they took the city, the method of attack. When they came to Jericho, they march around the city six days. On the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. And the wall falls flat. So we saw that in Joshua. What was the strategy at, at I? Paul, what was, I, mean, I don't think you taught I, but what, what was the strategy there? Well, once they lost and were driven away, they were told to fake like they were being driven back again and there would be an army waiting to take the city as they came okay. out, a diversion. They, they act as if they're defeated, but they have certain people lying in ambush. So, so there's been a lot of description of the methods. There wasn't as much of a description of the method in Joshua 10 the other night. Wasn't as much of a description. But it does give us more detail than this. What, what was the detail we were told in Joshua 10 about the conflict? Do you remember? When Gibeon sends to help in Joshua 10, the Bible says that all the men of warrior, all the men, valiant men, uh, they went up and they marched in verse 9 all night from Gilgal. Again, now that's not much detail, but, but there's a little bit there. And in this case, there's almost none. And I want to tell you what that can do to us. That can lead us to fail to see the wonder of what is happening here. If you would have had odds placed on who the victor in this battle was, everything would have leaned toward Hazel. This victory against a superior army with superior weapons is an absolutely amazing accomplishment that needs to constantly remind us of God's incredible power. There is a tendency, and I say this even in myself, to read over this so quickly, just trying to get down a few facts, and failing to see the awe and wonder of what God has done here. Now, I want to also stress another point of emphasis. Another point of emphasis is how carefully Joshua obeys. He obeys Moses. He obeys the Lord. Now, what verse did we see previously? What verse have we just seen that emphasizes that truth? Verse 9. Verse 9. 11, verse 9. Go ahead and read it again, Paul, if you would. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Okay, very good. Hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Very good. He, so he does exactly what he is told in verse 6. And I don't know if any other army that would have conquered Hazor would have done that. If Joshua had not been instructed by the Lord specifically to do it, he may not have done it. But they do that. They're trusting in God and not in military might. In verse 10, 
Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed. And he burnt Hazor with fire. And Joshua captured all the cities of these kings. And all these kings. And he struck them with the edge of the sword. And utterly destroyed them. Just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. However Israel did not burn any cities. That stood on their mounds. Except Hazor alone. Which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle and the, the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword. Until they had destroyed them, they left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses. So verse 10, Hazor was formerly head of all of these kingdoms. And yet they are utterly defeated in battle. Look for that phrase. Look for that phrase. Um, or look for verses that emphasize the obedience of Joshua. And I'll ask you about those in just a moment. One of the questions I did ask you, I asked you about... What cities were burned? What cities were not burned? Um, what did you all find on that? Anything? Uh, yes, go ahead, Nikki. Was it uh, Gaza, Gath, and Ashram? Were three cities that were left unburned? Okay. They were unburned. Yes. There's several cities. Several cities are left unburned the only one I guess another way to say it in this chapter the only one burned is Hazor Hazor is burned now let me ask you a question how many cities have we seen in Joshua to this point that were burned three three okay very good and so Hazor what, what were the others Deborah Jericho and I, yes. In, in Jericho was in 624. I, I believe, is 827. And then Hazor, you find here in 11, in verse 13 um, and 14. Particularly verse 13, I believe. But you find Hazor mentioned here. Now, let me tell you one of the reasons why I want to emphasize that. There have been a lot of questions about archaeology and how it relates to the book of Joshua. And as we've stated before, uh, archaeology facts don't usually just come up from the ground with a sign on them to say, you know, I come from this period of time uh, and this is my meaning. They are interpreted in light of other evidence. Some people have used the events of the book of Joshua to criticize how historically accurate the Bible is. 
other people, and I need to probably talk about this in more detail, other people have pointed out, and you can look at a lot of things from archaeology, and it fits hand in glove with what we see in Joshua, that it confirms our faith, that it strengthens our faith, that it doesn't take away from our faith. But among those who have been critics of the book of Joshua and its historical nature, one of the points they made is, is you don't see at the time, some of them have said this before, uh, I, you don't see in the time of Joshua just a complete burning of all those cities in the land of Canaan. Now, is that what you would expect from a careful reading of the biblical text? Brad, you say no. No, I was about to see three cities burned. Yeah. You're not, the point is, sometimes these archaeological conclusions are drawn from a, an uncareful reading of the biblical text. They're criticizing the Bible as not being historically accurate, but they haven't read it carefully enough to recognize that it doesn't tell us that they were uh, Sherman in his march to the sea. They just burned down everything that they encountered. It's not like that. This is, and, and what, what did we see in Deuteronomy that did not fit with that kind of picture either? Remember what God told them when they come into the land? You're going to have cities you didn't build and houses you didn't build and passages like uh, Deuteronomy 6 beginning around verse 10 Deuteronomy 8 beginning around verse 10. And so the, the, the truth of the matter is some of these people have criticized the biblical record not carefully reading the biblical record and recognizing that they are looking for things in archaeology that are not mentioned in Scripture. And so sometimes when people oppose Scripture, they're not opposing what it actually says. They're opposing what they think that it should say or how they have uh, misinterpreted it. But anyway, wanted to stress that point. What are some other verses in this section that emphasize Joshua's careful obedience to the ways of the Lord? Well, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 13, um, he says that they're supposed to, when the God goes into your hand, you strike all the men with the edge of the sword. Yes, absolutely. He quite literally strikes all the men with the edge of the sword. Yes, very good. I mean, you, you went above and beyond what I'm even asking because you're, you're going back to the passage in Deuteronomy itself that expresses that. But Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 18, talk about uh, how they are to destroy those in these cities. I was thinking just specifically of verses from Joshua 11. Now, that was the ultimate basis of what God said. But what are some passages here where you see um, God has said that specifically? Verse 12. Verse 12. As Moses had the servant had of the Lord had commanded. Okay, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded, and what else? Verse 15. 
Verse 12, verse 15, it's verse 15. But as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse, verse 16. Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, the lowland of the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, its lowland, from Mount Halak. Uh, that rises towards Seir, even as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. And Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, just as he might destroy them, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There was a question the other night about how frequently some of these events are happening. Uh, like how much time was there between the battle uh, in Joshua 9 where they took um, or, or the Gibeonites surrender and then they, they had the battle afterwards. Everything is described in quick succession. There are um, amazingly few references to time and chronology in, in Joshua like that. Just, just not many. But the Bible says... In verse 18, he waged war with them a long time. Now, that long time has to be taken into consideration too because it seems like these events in Joshua take place all within Joshua's lifetime. Joshua dies at 110. So, But how long of a time does this book cover how back-to-back were these particular conflicts? It's, it's just, just impossible to tell. We, we don't know with certainty. But you see, all these areas that Israel conquered during this long conflict, and it says nobody makes peace with Israel except the Gibeonites, verse 19. And of course, we remember that story well in Joshua 9. We remember it. But it says it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Now, what what does that remind you of, biblically? It's of the Lord to harden their hearts. And what does it remind you of? Okay, Pharaoh in 1120 hardened his heart. It was of the Lord to harden their hearts or harden his heart. The times that this is specifically, sometimes it's specifically said of Pharaoh are Exodus 421, Exodus 4.21, Exodus 7.3, Exodus 9.12, or excuse me, 3, that's Exodus 7, verse 3, verse 9, then in... um, no, it's not. Forgive me. It's 9, 12. Okay, I had it in the first place. 
12 and uh, 10:20 and 11:10. Those are some times that God is said to harden the heart of Pharaoh. And here he has said to harden the heart of the Canaanites. Now, our question is not now, um, how does God do that? Or is that fair for God to do this? Because I don't think any of these things destroy the free will of the people. My point right now is to make a comparison between the events of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. The events of the Exodus were a judgment on the Egyptians for oppressing and mistreating his people. And the events in the conquest of Canaan are a judgment on the Canaanites for their sins, their idolatry, their child sacrifice before uh, they, uh, Israel got to the land. But they destroyed them. And look at verse 20. Look at the end. It says he might destroy them just as the Lord commanded Moses. And it seems like they're carrying out those commands just as the Lord commanded. What, what other questions do you have? What other ideas do you have right here? Okay, the Anakim are mentioned in verses 21 and 22. In verse 21, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There was no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gozan, in, in, excuse me, in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Some remained, all Philistine cities, uh, or eventually become. But the Anakim, or the sons of Anak, who, um, what do we know about them? Just go ahead and speak if you've got that answer. They were the people that the ten spies um, lost their faith over. Okay. <laughs> they were the people, and what did the spies say when they come back? The people are what? They're too big, they're too scary. Too big, too strong, we can't take the land. And um, they're too big, they're too strong, and and mentions that they lost their faith because of them. Numbers 13.33 in the episode of those spies, they're mentioned. They're mentioned in Deuteronomy 1, verse 28, as Moses was reviewing those events. Of um, Numbers chapter 13. Then they're mentioned in Deuteronomy 2, in verse 10, in verse 11, when the Bible is talking about how some enemies conquered foes that were as big as the Anakim. Uh, in chapter 9, Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 and 2, listen to what it says. It says, not Deuteronomy 9, 1 and 2, Hear, O Israel, you're crossing over the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you and great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. 
So these were a large and tall people that terrified the Israelites. And they said, we can't take them. And again, the victory over them here in Joshua 11, verses 21 and 22, is narrated rather quickly. But do not lose your sense of awe and wonder at what God is doing here. He is taking a terrifying people that led the ten spies to bring back a bad report, that led the people to ask who can stand before Him. God is taking these foes and they are falling before Joshua and his army. They're utterly destroying them. All of this should strengthen our faith in God and His His power. Um, anything right there? Anything more, Nikki? Yeah, I I was wondering why he set, like left them in Gaza Gap and Ashdod, like some remained. What was the purpose behind that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure at this time later the Philistines will be here. Maybe we are to view some of the Philistine giants that came as connected to these groups. But what we will find in the book of Joshua is they were generally successful and generally obedient. But in a lot of these places, when we get to Joshua 15, we'll start seeing it. They left a remnant of these people and didn't totally destroy them. They didn't finish the job as as much as they should have. And therefore, they leave openings for problems in the future when they do that. Uh, go ahead, Brad. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of um, my, my question. When I was reading through this in verse 23, Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses. So, I I mean, it sounds like on the face of it that he took the whole land. Yes. So, Nikki's question is, like, well, why are there some people that are there? So, I wonder if the, the entire land might be, you know, the um, the, the Kinnereth, Kinnereth region. I, I wonder if he's limiting it to the people that Joshua tried to. Mm-hmm. Like, he did, he did that. Okay, it could be a regional thing, or it could be to say that they had the upper hand in the land. But I want to tell you, there is a little tension, as some would say, in the biblical text here between the take all the land and look over at Joshua 13.1. In Joshua 13.1 is what it says. Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. So you find both a picture of them taking the land and some of the land remains to be possessed, which is true. Both are true. Obviously, they're both stated. I think they have the upper hand in the land of Canaan. And as they distribute these tribes... the job had not been completely finished. It's the job of each of these tribes to drive out the remnant of people that remain from them. So, does that help with your question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Nikki, you had your hand up too. Yeah, so back in Deuteronomy 19, verse 1 through 10, it mentions 
that God cuts off all the nations, disposes them, and then in verse 2 it says, set for yourself aside three cities in the midst of the land. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, like, is that connected to, like, are those the three cities? No, no. Those those are cities of refuge which will be discussed in Joshua 20. They, They will come back in this book Okay. But but not not till then not till Joshua chapter twenty. Um, look at verse twenty three of Joshua eleven. It says Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now that's the point that Brad was making. But also you see the careful as the Lord had spoken to Moses. They take the land, but the text goes on to say that Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Now, I don't know if this is going to ring true with you uh, right away, but when I read that word rest, what book do you most naturally think of? They, they defeated the land. The land has rest. I think of Solomon Chronicles. You do see that expression there, but I think you see it more frequently in Judges. That often after the time of a disruption because of a judge, a judge will rise up and deliver them and then they will have rest. Some examples in Judges 3, 11 and um, 30 and 5.30 and there are other examples. But that is a phrase mentioned most frequently there. They have defeated their enemies. They are victorious in the conflict. And there is a period of cessation of war. And there is rejoicing in that. Now, um, Paul dealt with this the other night a little bit. But you notice in verse 20 and 21, the phrase utterly destroy. Utterly destroy. I do have a dream someday of having a classroom that has nothing but a big board uh, across the back that you can just write on and utterly destroy. That particular, this particular verb is used in the Old Testament 52 times. It's 52 times in the Old Testament. And 10 of those times in Joshua 10 and 11. So, like you got a fifth of all the biblical references to this, all the Old Testament references in these two chapters of Joshua. You see it, they utterly just, in 10.1, in 28, 35, 37, 39, and 40. It's here in chapter 11, we will see it in 11, verse 11, verse 12, verse 20, and verse 21. So, so there's a lot of emphasis in the fact there is... They, we'll find in Joshua they're not 100% obedient, but they are generally obedient. And they are doing this as Moses had commanded them. What else? Y'all had some good ideas, good questions. Anything else you can think of? Okay, guys, uh, appreciate it. And Lord willing, 
Uh, we'll try Joshua 12 is kind of a summary of what they've done to this point. We may use that as a chance not only to look at that, but to summarize some of these things, uh, Lord willing, on Wednesday. And I do appreciate Paul teaching last Wednesday. Thank you very much, Paul.